I invite you to open your Bible or one of the few Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 2 for the reading of God's holy inerrant word. And as the Lord himself breathed out this word by his spirit and preserved it for us in scripture, let us ask him to breathe upon us afresh that we might receive it in true faith and respond to the glory of his name. Our gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have spoken to us by the word of your Son in flesh and blood, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Spirit in the word written in the Holy Scriptures that you have given unto us that we might be built up in faith. And so we pray, our God, that even now you would work miraculously, supernaturally to illumine our minds spiritually and to open our hearts that we might behold the wonders of your love and grace and power in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let us hear the word of God. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. 
Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, one of the unfortunate consequences of the secularization of Christmas is the fact that on December the 26th, or maybe by, let's say, I don't know, 8 o'clock on Christmas night, it's over. It's all over except for the cleaning up. Well, you see, we've totally lost the point that (laughs) here's the thing. In in Christian history, and Christian tradition, the Christmas season actually begins on December the 25th. It doesn't end on December the 25th. It begins on December the 25th, and it runs for 12 days until the day of Epiphany, January the 6th. Now, the word Epiphany, you can read about this on your bulletin cover after the service, but... Here's the the short version. The word epiphany, from which we get the English word phenomenon, means appearance or manifestation. It refers to the appearance of the star which led the Magi to Bethlehem. But it also refers to the grace of God which has appeared for people of every nation in the appearance of Jesus Christ. Now, in Christian tradition, uh, in hymns, in pageantry, etc., uh, you know, the, the, the Magi are seen there in Bethlehem um, at, at the manger with the shepherds as though they arrived on the night of Jesus' birth. But when we read the record, we can see that, in fact, some time elapsed before the Magi arrived in Bethlehem. By that time, Joseph and Mary were living in a house. Uh, We read that that Herod, when he unleashed his demonic slaughter of the male children of that region, all all the male children under two years. So there's a time lapse, and that gets blurred uh, for us because of our traditions. But but what happens is when, when, you know, when Christmas is just over on December the 25th, and we don't we don't pay attention to the day of Epiphany and the coming of the Magi as being something that is, comes after the birth of Jesus. What happens is this. We miss the whole point of Christmas. What is the whole point of Christmas? The whole point of Christmas is the incarnation of the Son of God. For what reason? For God so loved 
the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the point of Christmas. The incarnation of the Son of God, the birth of Jesus, the King of the Jews, the Messiah of Israel was for the salvation of people of every nation. And ultimately people of every nation will worship Christ forever in his eternal kingdom. Now that's what the visit of the Magi is really all about. By telling us about the visit of the Magi, Matthew is telling us not only some interesting points of history and these interesting people that, you know, came a long way to worship Jesus. He's telling us some very important theological truths. There is truth in history. Luke in his gospel does exactly the same thing in his account of the birth of Jesus. Remember in the gospel of Luke, we had this conflict between two rulers, Caesar Augustus, the so-called son of God, savior of the world, who brought peace on earth, Caesar Augustus. And then there was Jesus Christ born in Bethlehem by the eternal decree of God. Likewise, in Matthew, we see this contrast and conflict between two kings. There's first of all King Herod. Now, Herod was from a family that had been heavily involved in the politics of Judea for some time, and they even were in the service of Julius Caesar. The Roman Senate had appointed Herod as the king of the Jews. Herod was not really a king. He was a puppet king. He was set up by Rome over the Jews in Judea. And Herod the Great was a madman. He was was a, a, a bloodthirsty madman. Murderer, ruthless ruler who not only ordered the slaughter of infant males around Bethlehem, but he also ordered the executions of his wife and his sons to protect his position of power. That's the kind of world Jesus was born into. That's the kind of death threats that were constantly on Jesus, even from his infancy. See, even here, this, we kind of have this image of this, this sweet story about the Magi coming to worship Jesus. The shadow of the cross falls on this story. The shadow of the cross the rage of the world, the rejection of the world. So there's one king, king of the Jews, Herod the Great, but then there's the other king of the Jews. He's a true Jew. Matthew tells us in the very first verse of chapter 1 as he opens the gospel, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, he's telling us Jesus Christ is the true king. So you see, Luke contrasted the supposed world savior of peace, Caesar Augustus, and the true world savior of peace, Christ the Lord. Now Matthew contrasts the supposed king of the Jews, Herod the Great, and the true king of the Jews, this child, Jesus. And and the point is that when we read Matthew and Luke, 
We read it in their historical context. We realize that the birth of Jesus immediately raised the questions, who really rules the world? Who really reigns as the true king over all nations? And that's a question that we must answer today as well. And the point in both cases is to show that in and through Jesus, this child, God was and is exercising his sovereign power in the world and over the world to accomplish his saving purposes for the redemption of the world, the saving of people of every nation. Through the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and by light of an extraordinary star, God was revealing that his son, Jesus Christ, is the true king over all nations. Now Luke and Matthew also give us their own illustrations of how the gospel of Christ is for all people. Remember how Luke illustrates that the gospel is for all people? The first who heard the good news were the shepherds, the no-name people, the unimportant people, the poor, the social outcast. They were the first to hear the proclamation of the good news by the angel. Well, well, how does Matthew show us the truth of the gospel for all people? From, with the magi from the east. Now, who were these magi, these wise men? They were Gentiles. They were not Jews. They were pagans from Persia, modern Iran. They were astronomers who studied the stars and planets. They were astrologers who interpreted the movements of the heavenly bodies. You see, science and pagan superstition were wedded together for them. And pagan astrology in that day, as in ours, was practiced with the belief that the planets and stars were supernatural deities, deities which affected human destiny. You know, you can read your horoscope tomorrow morning. Don't do it, but... It's still with us, right? So these magi, from which we get the word magic and magician, they they were idolaters. They were living in superstitious bondage to creation, believing that their destiny was, was ruled by constellations in the sky rather than the creator of the stars and the planets. But you see, Matthew tells us that these pagan idolaters were the very ones to whom God revealed the gospel of his son. These pagan idolaters were the very ones whom God called to worship him through his son, Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews. The visit of the Magi is indeed a picture of John 3, 16. Next time you look at a nativity scene and you see the Magi there, Christmas card, we we sing about it in our hymns, think about John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, even these pagan idolaters, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now the star could have been a a supernatural sign, the providential appearance of a supernova. Some have speculated a a providential alignment of Jupiter and Saturn. 
some scholars actually think that in, in reality it was an angel appearing as a star. No one knows for sure. But the really interesting question is why was it assigned to those magi, these pagan astrologers? How did they know what it meant? Now, this is interesting. A long time before the birth of Jesus, in the time of Moses, 1300 B.C. or so, that's a long time, the prophet Balaam spoke a prophecy. It's recorded in the book of Numbers, chapter 24. Prophet Balaam spoke a prophecy. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Now there's the reference to a star rising out of Israel, which would signal the rising up of a new king of Israel who would deliver his people from their enemies. The really interesting thing is that the prophet Balaam was not an Israelite prophet. He was a pagan prophet from the east. There are references to this pagan prophet Balaam in non-biblical documents of the ancient Near East. His, His life is historically verified outside of the Bible as well as within There are references to to this Balaam, this prophet. Now, these magi had perhaps learned about this prophecy by studying the ancient texts of Balaam. God had somehow providentially planted this prophecy of the birth of Israel's Messiah in the texts of the pagan astrologers. Or, After the Assyrians and the Babylonians conquered Israel and Judah in the 6th century B.C. and the scriptures, the Old Testament, had become available. The scriptures of the Old Testament went from Judah and Israel to Assyria and Babylon. They had become available to the pagans in the east and they were studied by their priests and prophets. So perhaps also in that way the prophecy of the star signaling the birth of Israel's Messiah had become known to the astrologers of the pagan world. God had been preparing them for centuries. Well, see, the point is to show that God, the one and only true and living God, ruling over history, ruling over nature, ruling over all people, working all things according to his plan of redemption for the world. God had been at work in amazing ways, even in pagan lands, through pagan prophets to prepare the pagan world to receive the light of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, the light to the nations which means the light to the pagans, the king of all nations. Now, you see, this is not merely a matter of something that happened a long time ago in history. It's immediately relevant for us today. It speaks to us of God's sovereign purposes being worked out in history and the ultimate purpose being the glory of his kingdom filling the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're a part of that. We need to put ourselves, see ourselves in this story, in this this story which is ongoing, God's work of redemption in the world. He's, He's placed us here at this particular place and time to bear witness to what he's doing in the world, all over the world for his redeeming purposes. We're called to participate in that. 
as his people through Jesus Christ, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples of all nations, looking to that great and glorious day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the picture we see here in the visit of the Magi. These pagan astrologers fell down and worshipped Jesus. They bowed their knees. They confessed with their tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord. They acknowledged and believed that the Messiah of Israel is the Savior of the world and the King of all nations. And as they did so, they did so as the representatives of the pagan peoples of the world. Uh, Let me say it this way. As they did so, they did so as representatives of you and me. The visit of the Magi was a foreshadowing of this worship service on the other side of the earth with a bunch of Gentiles worshiping Jesus, the King of the Jews. That's how it's worked itself out in history. It began there, and it's going on right here today. Can you see yourself there in the story? That's how it works itself out. It's, a, it, it's a, a little glimmer of the fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 72. L- listen to this language. All kings will bow down to him. All nations will serve him. We read in the opening sentences, call to worship from Isaiah 60, nations will come to your light, kings to the bright, bright, brightness of your rising. This is a vision of the world representing Jesus Christ It is a vision of the victory of Jesus Christ within history. It's a vision of the the victory of the kingdom of God in history. It's it's a vision for the world coming to Christ. We are still a part of that ongoing work of redemption. Psalm 2 is a prophetic psalm of Jesus' kingship over all the earth in which God the Father says to His Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So the visit of the Magi was itself a prophetic foreshadowing of all nations coming to Jesus Christ. The worship of the Magi was itself a prophetic foreshadowing of all nations bowing down before him. And for that very reason, we cannot forget our calling as Jesus' redeemed people, to be the light of the world, to let our light shine, to do all that we are called to do, to fulfill the great commission, to make disciples of all nations. Now, it's very, very important for us to make the connection between the visit of the Magi, the nations coming to Jesus, here at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, And then, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, what do we have? We have the Great Commission. Jesus sending his disciples into the world to make disciples of all nations. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Gospel of Matthew shows the world coming to Christ and Christ's people going into the world for the purpose of fulfilling God's redeeming work in this dark and brutal world. 
The visit of the Magi really shows us in miniature what the end will be. The nations of the world worshiping the true and living God through his son, Jesus Christ. That is the goal of history. That is what has been revealed to us. That is the reason that in the book of the Revelation, Jesus is called the ruler of kings of the earth and king of kings and lord of lords. And that should give us great confidence. The church of Jesus Christ should have full confidence in the word of God, full confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it, and that as God works out his purposes in history, he will work his will for the glory of his name. And that ought to give us great confidence in the work of evangelism, the great, great confidence in the, in, in the work of um, uh, mission work throughout the world, Because we're not on the losing side. Jesus Christ has offered himself up as the savior of the world and is risen from the dead, has all authority over heaven and earth, and God's word will not fail. Now that's the very reason that we as a congregation are committed to global missions. That's the reason that we support our EPC missionaries in Africa, in India, in Jordan, name just a few, along with our general support of our denominational EPC World Outreach Program, which has missionaries in a lot of very difficult and dangerous places in the world. This is the reason that we support the education of international students at Reformed Theological Seminary so that they may be trained to take the gospel back to their own homeland. This is the reason that we're very seriously considering and really have preliminary plans for our own short-term mission trip to Guatemala this year, led by our own Paul West and and our mission partners in Guatemala. Why? Because just as the light of Jesus Christ has arisen upon us to deliver us from the darkness of spiritual superstition and the bondage of our sins to grant us the light of everlasting life, so we have been called by Christ to shine his light of salvation throughout all the world that Jesus Christ might receive the the rightful worship and honor that is due to his name from all nations. It's not just about nations that are far away from us. You know, when we talk about global missions, it's really important for us to remember that Washita Parish is on the globe. (laughs) You ever thought about that? Right. And... The United States of America is a mission field, period. Our neighborhoods are mission fields. Cultural Christianity is pretty much gone, and that's a good thing. Because now we got to live as the light of the world and the salt of the earth and come to terms with the fact that our neighborhoods are mission fields. And I bet you have people living in your neighborhood who are not regularly worshiping on the Lord's Day. I bet there are children in your neighborhood who are growing up without the benefit and the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Do you know who they are? Would you be willing to get out of your comfort zone in 2017 and invite them to come worship the king with you? Share a meal with them after the service. But you see, the only way that we can serve Christ in this world and seek to advance his kingdom is that, first of all, for each one of us to fall down, each one of us to fall down before him and to offer him the treasure of our lives. It will do no good to speak of Christ as king of all nations if we ourselves, as individuals, have not bowed the knee to his kingship. If we ourselves do not continually submit ourselves to his reign and seek to live in obedience to his word, he is king of kings and lord of lords because he has conquered death and risen victoriously. He lives and reigns forever. And his everlasting kingdom is for those who worship him and honor him and take refuge in him. And the hope of glory lies before us. We need to live in that confidence in 2017. Let's begin today by falling down and worshiping him and offering him the treasures of our lives. Amen. To God be the glory. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. For what he has done for us. What he continues to do for us as our intercessor, our advocate, our mediator, and our great shepherd. We pray in his name that your Holy Spirit will renew us, revive us, and empower us. So that we, following him, may be the light of the world. To the glory of your name, amen.